Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Friday evening where we have the opportunity to reflect into the Gospel of Mark once more. This is the fourth Sunday of Ordinary Time, so we will be in our fourth week of reflecting into the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, which will have us pulling back a little bit. Uh, Certainly, I am going to read the gospel, and we will reflect upon the verses. But because this evening's gospel is where Jesus really inaugurates his new covenant message, if you will, I thought we could look at what is similar and dissimilar with the other gospels. As we are still in the first chapter, I am compelled to consider just not things we have talked about in the first three weeks when we were in the gospel of Mark, but also add a few other nuances, maybe, that might help us better understand and how to better approach the Gospel of Mark. Again, each and every Gospel is unique, and so we have to appreciate that for what it is, and certainly this will be part of our discussion this evening. And oh, by the way, I am flying solo this evening. Uh, Debbie Nordeacon Ray is with me, so if you have a question, again, please do not hesitate to email me at j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com, or you can go to my website at joholcraft.org and just hit the contact uh, link there and send your email on its way. I always enjoy the conversation, the dialogues that come from this radio program, both local and abroad, so please do not hesitate with shooting me your question. It could be about, you know, the subject matter we talk about on the radio program this evening, or any question you might have about the the Christian Catholic faith. So with that, let us go into uh, the Gospel of Mark. We are still again in chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying the loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching? With authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him? And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Amen. So here we have this definitive message that comes to us from the Gospel of Mark, huh? I mean, Mark does not, in the beginning, talk about the content of Jesus' preaching. He does not say anything yet about the teaching that Jesus proclaims. Mark is interested in the effect that he has, right from the start. It is the person of Jesus that has the center stage. He himself 
is the message, huh? He is the new thing that has arrived, the beginning and the origin of a reconstituted world. This is what Mark is concerned with in every way. Uh, now, that being said, <laughs> this is very different than the other Gospels. And before I engage uh, a few sound bites to the Gospel of John and to the Gospel of Matthew and to the Gospel of Luke and kind of comparing them to Mark, I thought it would be good to uh, read paragraph 125 from the Catechism as well as paragraph 127. Paragraph 125 reads as follows, The Gospels are the heart of all scriptures because they are our principal source for the life and teaching of the incarnate Word, our Savior, right? Remember what the word principle means, the origin, that foundational source, that first source for the life and teaching of the incarnate Word, our Savior. How about paragraph 127? The fourfold gospel holds a unique place in the church. Now, by fourfold, what does the catechism mean? Well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? They are distinct, but at the same time united. As we talk about it within the context of the Trinity, we can say there is a unity in distinction. Again, paragraph 127, the fourfold gospel holds a unique place in the church, as is evident both in the veneration which the liturgy accords it and in the surpassing attraction it has exercised on the saints at all times. And then the catechism quotes a couple of the saints, uh, the first, St. Caesarea the Younger, uh, who says this, There is no doctrine which could be better, more precious and more splendid than the text of the gospel. Behold and retain what our Lord and Master Christ has taught by his words and accomplished by his deeds. And how about St. Therese of Lisieux, the great humble French saint? She says this, But above all, it's the gospels that occupy my mind when I'm in prayer. My poor soul has so many needs, and yet this is the one thing needful. I'm always finding fresh lights there, hidden and enthralling meetings. I love that. Fresh lights. This is why we spend time with the gospel each and every Friday evening, because we're always calling upon the Holy Spirit to gain more insight into the wonder and the beauty that is the inspired Word of God. Huh? So, what can be gained by uh, pulling back and looking at maybe uh, Matthew, John, and Luke briefly as we talk about Mark? Well, I think a deeper appreciation for what's going on in the Gospel of Mark, and of course, at the same time as the Catechism talks about it, the fourfold Gospel. Uh, maybe we can first take a, a look at the Gospel of John. Uh, what I want to focus in on here is specifically where he starts his ministry and what his message is all about. I know many of you listeners out there are familiar with where Jesus Christ starts his ministry at the wedding feast at Cana, right? Uh, John 2, verses 1 to 12. Now, when you go to John 2, verse 1, there's something interesting that happens right away, and you can immediately sense that something's different with the Gospel of John, okay? Now, it's important to note, with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have the synoptic gospels, those gospels which speak to the teachings and the life of Christ in a, yes, theological way, but at the same time in a way that really records his words and deeds. 
unlike John. The symbol for John is an eagle because he soars, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, while they are synoptic gospels, and yes, they are theological, they don't have the layers that John has. And in many ways, John writes his gospel, it has been said, to fill in the theological gaps, if you will. And so uh, this is very important. Now, I say this opening verse uh, is a clue into the richness of uh, John, because why? I mean, John 2, verse 1, on the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee. Well, the third day from what day? Well, if you were to go to John 1, 29, we read the next day. If you were to go to John 1, 35, we read the next day. If you were to go to John 1, 43, we read the next day. Joe, what's your point? Well, in John 2, 1, the third day ultimately is from the fourth day, which is what day? The seventh day. Okay, some of you are thinking to yourself, I didn't know we were going to take a statistics class this evening. Well, this is what John is about. He wants us to see that the wedding feast at Cana is not only the third day, but also the seventh day. Why? Because on the seventh day, which God hallowed, huh, in the story of creation, the new covenant that has come with Jesus Christ is about the third day, the day in which we know new life. Okay, so the third day and the seventh day in history are now going to be synchronized, if you will. At least this is what John wants us to see. Traditionally, of course, our Lord arriving at a marriage speaks to Jesus sanctifying the covenant of marriage uh, by his very presence. I believe in this narrative, if you go to chapter 2, verse 10, you find the interpretive key that in many ways unlocks the importance of this great marriage feast. Because in chapter 2, verse 10, we read of the good wine, a biblical symbol capable of more than one association. And again, this is the layers that John wants us to see. The first would be that an abundance of wine is a sign of the Messianic age. If you were to go into the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Joel, the prophet Amos, they speak of wine as a sign of the Messianic age. Well, here is Christ instituting the good wine and provoking mind and heart for all those present and for all those reading this text that, behold, the Messianic age is suddenly upon you. Okay, how about the second association? Well, if you were to go to the Song of Songs, in more than one verse, we know that the good wine signifies the joys of marital love, huh? And when we talk about the Song of Songs, we are made to see the unique relationship that exists between eros and agape, right? Eros is that human erotic fleshy love, and of course, agape is that divine sacrificial love. Uh, Song of Songs is very provocative when you read it. I mean, this Old Testament book is rich. And when we read Song of Songs, yes, uh, the good wine signifies the joys that come with marital love. And how about the third association? That is, the transformation of water into wine, and how it anticipates the transubstantiation of wine into blood when Jesus gives himself to the world in the Eucharistic liturgy, okay? And how about the fourth association? 
the wine of the marital celebration, looking beyond this life to the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. In this fourth association, along with the third association, we have a great theme that begins to develop for the whole Gospel of John, which is very important, of course. This is not what tonight is about. But I pause now to talk about the richness of the wedding feast at Canaan, because this is where, for John, Jesus inaugurates his ministry, which is very unique to John. John is the eagle. He soars. There's so many layers to peel back with John. What did St. Therese of Lisieux say? So many new lights to discover. So, very important. Now, how about Matthew? Well, where does Matthew start his message? Well, if you were to go to the Sermon on the Mount, it's Matthew 5. And in Matthew 5, what do you have? But the Sermon on the Mount that encapsulates the law of the New Covenant, a collection of our Lord's teachings on Christian living and His perfection, ultimately, of all of the Old Covenant laws. Okay? What is the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, in many ways, encapsulates the first three commandments, because the first beatitude, like the first three commandments, have us focusing in on God, and that sets the foundation, okay? So what's important for us to see here is, in the Gospel of Matthew, we're into chapter 5, and he has only begun to communicate the message that properly belongs to the New Covenant. Yes, he was preaching in chapter 4, but now we have the message, okay, that is in chapter 5, all right? And that message is unique to the Gospel of Matthew, right? John is writing to a Mediterranean Gentile audience. Matthew is writing to a Palestinian Christian Jewish audience. All of these authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are writing to different audiences at different times. So they all hold this very unique character. But as the Catechism reminds us, this is the fourfold gospel because they reach the ends of the earth. They reach every endpoint to God's compass. And this is, again, what we are made to see. Now, how about Luke? Well, Luke, like Matthew, starts his gospel with a focus in on where Jesus Christ comes from by way of genealogy, right? So this is very important to Luke. Certainly in Luke's gospel, everything starts with our Lord's first sermon in the synagogue of his hometown, Nazareth, huh? When he explains his public appearance by the light of Old Testament prophecy. For all of this, what is its importance? What is it that we need to see? Well, <laughs> if it's John chapter 2, verse 1, Matthew 5, or Luke starting his own narrative with the message of Jesus in chapters 4 and 5, let me tell you something. Mark launches in to his gospel. It's very fast-paced. In fact, you see the word immediately 40 times. 40 times! Ultimately, what Mark wants us to see is the urgency to which Christ was working. 30 years he spent with Joseph and Mary. Three years he spent in public ministry. And when you read the gospel of Mark, you cannot help but get caught up in this urgency Okay, I know, you know, when you read six, seven verses every Sunday, you, you could miss that urgency. But if you were listening carefully today, right, in verses 21 to 28, you heard the word immediately twice. You can already get a sense, yeah, that this is a fast-paced narrative. Okay, not that Christ didn't retreat. We know in the gospel he withdrew 14 times. 
But there was this sense of urgency. Jesus didn't waste time, okay? And this is important for us to understand. Now, that being said, before we touch upon the verses in verses 21 to 28, I was hoping to speak to just a few words that while we touched upon them in past weeks, I wanted to really bring them together in light of verses 21 to 28. And so let us go back to that opening verse to the Gospel of Mark. The beginning of the Gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, the beginning, iarche is the Greek. This translates Genesis 1, right? Besherif is the Hebrew for in the beginning. The iarche translates that. This is the same Greek you see in John. While Mark doesn't go to the depth that John does, he certainly wants us to see his gospel in light of the Old Testament, because all four gospels, right, want us to see how Christ is the fulfillment of the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament. Uh, Certainly, it doesn't take long for us to discover that, because he's quoting three Old Testament passages and the second verse of his gospel. But what can we say about this first verse? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel, right? The evangelion, the good news, the glad tidings. When you break down the Greek and its compound, eugelion, it's, it's angel, message, right? Good message. Now, as we talked about it last week, when Debbie was with me, we read from Benedict XVI's work, Jesus of Nazareth, and he really honed in huh, on the importance of that word gospel and how it figures into the Roman vocabulary and Roman way of life, that the, the evangelion was synonymous with Uh, the message that came from Caesar. Well, Mark wants us to see that truly there is a true Son of God. There is a true Lord, and He truly does come with a good message, and a message that in fact transforms. So Mark wants us to see right off the top that Christ has come to establish a new creation, and this creation is tied to the tidings and the message that he brings. Huh? Now, how about one of the Old Testament prophecies? Verse 2, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who shall prepare your way. Now, this is another key for us as we move forward into the Gospel of Mark. What's the Greek word for way? Oras. Odas, right? Well, what does that sound like? How about ex odas? Okay, if way in the Greek is odas, ex odas is the way out. Okay, why would Mark be quoting Isaiah here? Because he wants us to see that in this new dispensation of grace, in this new covenant, in this new church that Christ has come to establish, the good news is that there is a new way, a new exodus. This is why, in fact, he quotes the book of Exodus in the next verse. You know, it's a fascinating historical truth for those of us who are uh, Christians and for those of us who are, you know, Christians, Catholics. There's a very interesting historical point to be had here. You know, the word Catholic was first coined by St. Ignatius of Antioch in 105 AD, Catholicae. He used it to speak to the universality of the church, okay? That the church that Christ came to establish is just not for one nation, but it's international, Gentile, Jew, Greek alike, huh? Now, 
up to that point, uh, the Catholic was often called Christian, right? In fact, the word Christian was often used by the emperors as a derogatory term. Huh? But before the term Christian was coined, when you talked about following Christ, it was the way. This comes through in the Gospel of Mark. You also read it in the book of Acts. There's talk about the way. Well, what was the way? Well, the way was the new exodos. The way out of what? I mean, what is Mark concerned with here? What does he want us to see? Well, that Jesus Christ's message, that slavery and bondage, wasn't about political domination. No, it was about our concupiscent appetite, our desire to sin. This is why John prepared the way with a baptism of repentance. I mean, what does the word repentance mean? What did we talk about in previous weeks? Well, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, literally meaning a change of mind, something that involves a twofold movement, we can say, a turning away from sin and at once a turn towards God. The turning away is contrition. The towards God is resolve. You resolve to move out from your life of sin and into a life of God. That is the new exodos. This is what Mark wants us to see. Isn't this fascinating? And that this new exodos is about God recreating us. This is why we read what we read in today's verses. He is the new thing that has arrived, the beginning and the origin of a reconstituted world that starts with the reconstitution of the heart. Remember that great passage from Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. The only time uh, you see the language of the New Covenant and New Testament in the Old Covenant and Old Testament. There, Jeremiah is prophesying about the New Covenant, and he says, When the Messiah arrives, the law will no longer be written on stone, but it will be inscribed upon the heart. Because when the new covenant comes, the law incarnate will come with it, which is the law of love. And this is what transforms the heart. And again, the Baptist, though, needed to prepare the way, the odas, because it was a new odas, a new ex-odas, out from sin into a life of God. You know, so many people, when they thought, you know, 2,000 years ago, when you thought about the Messiah coming, it was always about this new political empire reigning. Oh, and how people looked forward to that. The second Camelot, if you will. (laughs) If the empire with King David and King Solomon was the first Camelot, then certainly the dawn of the Messiah would bring the second Camelot, or maybe we can say the new Camelot. Now, you can call what you will, you know, what we had in the Middle Ages with England. But this was the anticipation. But again, this is not what it's about, and Mark wants us to see this clearly. So we can see two clear signs of what I am talking about now and what happens on that first day of public ministry in the synagogue at Capernaum. Huh? First, the effect his words have. I mean, they must have been incomparably powerful. huh? Let us ask, what was it in particular about the way he spoke about his sermon? I mean, Mark describes the people's response. He does not teach the way learned people do. 
scholars do. Rather, he teaches like someone who has what? Authority. Because divine power is displayed through our Lord's words. I mean, if you were to go back into history, most exorcists of the day, they would recite these lengthy incantations or use these odorous roots to expel demons. What does Jesus do? He simply commands the spirits and they leave. You know, the, the demon's inability to resist him is clearly seen by the dramatic exhibition of convulsing and crying. I mean, this is an entirely new authority. It was not his oratory that was powerful. People did not say, wow, doesn't, doesn't this master speak beautifully? <laughs> no, they are struck. His words strike home. They are effective. Our Lord does not offer opinions, interesting contributions for discussion, but he teaches with one who had authority. No man can say about his own words what Jesus says about himself at one point in this gospel. If you were to go to chapter 13, verse 31, what do we read? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the kind of divine authority he had. He is the Son of God. There was something I talked about last week, the importance of the words we use. They are incomparable to Christ's words. This is why we need to enter into the dynamism of Christ's words, huh? Because only he can create something new with his word. Jesus' words have the same power as the words of the creator. When he said, let there be, it was so. So here we have in the gospel of Mark, Jesus giving the first demonstration of the power of his word right at the start of his ministry. He has come. The word of God speaks. All the way up to that point, you talked about God. You could prophesy about God, but God never spoke. And here he speaks. This is what Mark wants to see. The power of his word. The power of his word that exercises demons. Remember what the word exercise means, to oath out, to oath out. Our whole sacramental identity, each and every sacrament, is about an oath-swearing ceremony, huh? Well, conversely, the adversary is about his own oath-swearing. And so, for Christ, when he exercises, he is oathing out. He's binding the demons to the netherworld. That's the power of his word. And so, yes, again, Mark wants us to see the urgency to which Christ moves, restoring man and the power of his word, and at the same time, drawing him deeper into the mystery of sonship. Again, for Mark, right from the start, it is the person of Jesus that has the center stage. He himself is the message, the kingdom of God incarnate. And so when we read the gospel of Mark over this next year, let us be mindful of this, that Jesus Christ, fully human, fully divine, is the new odos, the new ex-odos, the new way out from sin and into a life of grace and love. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.